0: Welcome to our program today and thank you for joining us. I'm Professor Larry Jacobs. I'm the director for the Center of the Study of Politics and Governance at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota. Let's begin today's program Saving Live Music, a conversation with Dessa and Dana Frank. I'd like to welcome Kelly Zarth. Kelly is a member of our center and she organized today's event. Kelly is a professional and former um, uh, live music venue worker, and she will be welcoming today's panel. Kelly.
1: Excellent, thanks so much, Larry. Uh, and thanks to everyone for joining us. Um, I am incredibly thrilled and honored to present this all-star panel today. Uh, joining us for today's conversation, our musician, rapper, writer, and now podcaster, Dessa. Uh, Neva president and president CEO of First Avenue Productions, Dana Frank, as well as NPR arts reporter, Ewen Kier, moderating for us today. Uh, Dessa has made a career of bucking genres and defying expectations. Her resume includes performances at Lollapalooza and Glastonbury, uh, co-compositions for an over uh, 100 voice choir, performances with the Minnesota Orchestra and top 200 entries on the Billboard charts. Uh, She's been published by the New York Times, National Geographic Traveler, broadcast by Minnesota Public Radio and published a memoir and essays titled My Own Devices in 2018, uh, in addition to two uh, literary collections. She's also the host of Deeply Human, a podcast created by the BBC and American Public Media. Uh, she's recently been working on her AIDS single series, where she's writing and releasing a new single on the 15th of each month. Uh, Dana Frank is president and CEO of First Avenue Productions, Minnesota's independently uh, excuse me, Minnesota's leading independently owned and operated concert venue and promoter. Uh, Dana has expanded the business beyond its star-adorned walls to include the Fine Line, the Turf Club, the Palace Theater, and the Fitzgerald Theater. Uh, she's currently working with the public to develop a community performing arts center on the Mississippi Riverfront. Um, Dana is also a founding board member of the National Independent Venue Association, working to secure financial support to preserve the national ecosystem of independent venues and promoters. Uh, Dana is a strong LGBTQ advocate, a 2018 Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen Institute, and a firm believer in community building through live music. And for our moderator today, uh, we have Ewan Kerr, who is a longtime radio personality, originally from Scotland, currently covering arts and culture for NPR News. Um, an editor at American Public Media and previously the news director at KFAI Radio. You can now find him discussing film on NPR's Cube Critics every Friday. Uh, thanks so much for all of you, uh, to all of you for being here today, and I will turn it over to Ewan to uh, lead today's conversation. Ewan?
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Kelly. And- it's great to to see uh, Dana and Dessa here to talk about a hugely important subject. But um, I'd like to start with maybe a little history. Take you back, whatever it is, fourteen months. And I, I read somewhere, Dana, that you talked about how the the music industry, or at least your part of the music industry, had three hours to close down. Take take me through what happened that day. As you realized that this pandemic was really gonna have a, a huge impact on on what you do.
3: Yeah, so it was crazy. We were kind of following the trends as like the shutdown started happening across the country, um, and you know first like Seattle and the coast, and then DC, um, and then you know we're kind of like trying to communicate with the governor's office and the mayor being like are the you know are the mandated closures coming are they coming because in our industry like we have um contracts with artists and there's there's a force majeure clause that says if you know closure is outside of your control then the contract is null and void so if we if we chose to close we would you know have to cover all of the costs which was unaffordable but if it was a mandated closure it would kind of trigger the force majeure so we were like waiting for these you know closures to come down and um, in the Turf Club, the smaller, the 375 cap in, in Midway St. Paul, the band decided they didn't want to play. So, okay, canceled that show. But we actually had a band loaded into the fine line, fully loaded in, ready to play, Dragon Slayer, like ready to go. And we were kind of saying to them, like, we don't know. We don't think this is safe. We don't know, but we're not scientists and we're not comfortable making this call. So, Finally, at around six o'clock on Friday, March 13th, the government, the government came down with like mandated. So we're like, okay, show is off. Um, in the main room, 1550, we had kind of Thursday, March 12th was Chelsea Cutler. And as of that date, we were like, I think we had a couple dance nights and we were like, you know what, let's just call it. But on the touring bands, you know, it's, it's a different kind of beast, just economically and contractually. So, yeah. So that's why I say like, we all, you know, three hours effectively. Um, and then it's funny, I was just in the First Avenue office yesterday and it's like, it's like a time machine because you walk in, it's like calendars from March, 2020. And we still have like, I should grab it. The uh, flyers from our 50th anniversary show with Nico Case, like sitting in the marketing promo office, like ready to go out. Like, because if you think back to that time, it's like every single other person was that you saw or came into contact with was potentially like gonna kill you, right? So it's like immediately like, get to your houses, don't socialize, don't do anything. And so, you know, we really prioritize state health and safety. So we were like, don't go to the office. Like we had a Google calendar where we had like one person scheduled to go in at a time, but for the most part, everything is like exactly like, you know, hoodies over, uh, over chairs, like everything is exactly how it was. So we have to now get back into the rebuilding process.
2: Well, well, let me turn to Dessa and have you cast your mind back and the i mean clearly this was an, an entirely new reality for performers for bands what what do you remember of those days when when the the reality really settled in
4: oh vividly i mean for me there was kind of a similar like last minute down to the wire scramble and that i at that point had been in london recording the the podcast that was mentioned at the beginning of the show and, um, and that wasn't public yet. You know, we hadn't announced it or whatever. So I'm kind of like secretly holed up in a, you know, nice enough chill, whatever, you know, London hotel. And I'm eating my, my midday meal and my phone starts blowing up next to my plate. And because I'm, um, because <laughs> I've been touring so long, like I always carry Tupperware with me. So I was trying to like slyly put my leftovers into my backpack and was upset that my phone was going, you know, attracting attention and I picked it up and, it was the news Trump had instituted the travel ban. Um, And so like every other, I'm sure American abroad, you know, it began kind of a frantic, like turn your data roaming on and try to figure out how to get home safely. And what is safest, you know, should I, should I camp out in a, in a London or wherever, like, you know, find an Airbnb, is it responsible to get in an airplane? Is it not? So the, the first um, kind of jolt, what for me was a, logistics and then secondly as dana mentioned is trying to figure out like what does this mean for all these contracts anyway but i think by the time i started googling flights which was about 3 hours later they were $10,000 for a one way trip home i lucked out and did not have to pay that but it was just you could you could sense the mad scramble of it all you know as as prices and skyrocketed and phone lines were too busy to get through. Mm -hmm.
2: But, but then what about your, your colleagues in the business? I mean, you must've been hearing from other musicians, other singers, other composers. I mean, what was the sense?
4: Yeah. So, so you're right. I mean, that was the, that was the first afternoon was where do you put your body, you know, to sort of ride this out. And then I think like afternoons two through 350, um, was trying to figure out how to navigate the reality that you know a lot of musicians at my level. So like you won't see me on like a Sprite ad or anything or on a um, on a billboard in all likelihood. But I do make my living. You know I can I like I live like an adult. You know like comfortably mm-hmm. enough. Um, so much of that income comes from live performance, and for reasons that everybody, even if you're not in the industry, could probably anticipate, in that the streaming economy makes it really easy to listen to music but it does make it tough to monetize that music you know it's hard to get paid for it essentially and so most of us make our living on the road and so when the road suddenly became unavailable this is like a huge um not just lifestyle but breadwinning collapse you know of the industry particularly if you think you know I thought a lot of like the younger musicians I looked out in some ways and like I'm already mid-career you know what I mean so I have the luck of like a little bit in the bank to coast on and maybe some mailbox money you know if, if a song had been used like in a movie or something you get that residual but that's not just a measure of skill that's just because I was lucky and happened to already be here when it hit so I thought a lot about those young artists who had their first like their first main stage show booked, you know, or their first big tour booked. And that's such a risky time of life in this business. You just really don't have anything to fall back on. And so I think like going through like the Venmo history in my phone, you could see this constant like network of small amounts of money being traded hand to hand, trying to figure out like who's short on rent, you know, before those like unemployment programs and and some of the federal grants came through. I think immediately it was kind of looking left and right in your industry to see, you know, who, who might genuinely be short on groceries because all of their income for an indeterminate amount of time just evaporated. Yeah.
2: I mean, I, I think a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I'm of a certain age, um, having grown up in the, the, the 70s and 80s and had this idea of the, the music economy, but I don't think a lot of people understand about the complete well, I'm, maybe turmoil is the wrong word but things have changed so markedly as to how people make a living through through performance through music
4: yeah you know I I, uh, I think the performer Riz Ahmed is is really talented and for those of you who might have seen his most recent film Sound of Metal there was one moment in that where I was like that's how it really is because you watch a lot of you know epics or whatever as a as a musician and sometimes they resonate sometimes they don't but he's like in a van he lives in a van and in the little galley like the kitchen area there is like a framed glossy image of him and his bandmate looking super like posh and rich you know on the cover of a magazine like it's way easier to get some press (laughs) a lot of times than it is to make like an adult wage you know so I think it can be confusing because you see somebody looking like they're getting a lot of shine, but it's really hard to, um, the alchemy of turning that shine into rent has become a lot more complicated in the digital age, yeah.
2: So let's kind of jump forward to the present. And um, Dana has been involved in this national initiative to try and help uh, shuttered venues. But before we talk about that, can we talk about how, what the situation really is I mean, the temptation is to say, how bad is it? But um, what, what, what is the reality now? Let, let's start with the venues. Um, most have been completely dark for months. What I mean are, are any, how many are going to be dark forever? I mean, what, what's your sense, Dana, of how things are out there?
3: So, yeah, so NEVA, the National Independent Venue Association, we have around 3,000 venues and promoters across the country. Um, And the sense is that the lobbying effort from the last year did a really amazing job of, like, inspiring hope and, like, uh, kind of giving people the motivation to, like, really stick it through. And, like, because a lot of times in small business, like, it's a choice, right, whether to fight or whether to just, like, close the doors and walk away. So our goal especially last summer and last fall when things got, when the reality that this was going to be maybe 18, maybe two months, maybe two years, really started to sink in for a lot of people. There were a lot of people that just didn't want to, they just didn't want to do it. So our job, as we saw it, was to like inspire people. It's like, keep going and like, don't give up. Because, you know, once you lose these venues, like you lose them forever. They don't, you don't really find like another, you know, uh, young, scrappy you know, well-resourced yet still authentic person to come along and like take them over, especially since, you know, the the kind of dire circumstance that a lot of us are in is you find a, a an abandoned building and like a, you know, downgraded neighborhood or whatever um, that's affordable because our business model like has no margins, it's super high risk and super low margin. Um, and so you find these places that people don't want and you build it up and you build up your community and you employ people and you put, everything into it. And then you become a destination. So it's where people want to hang out. So then the condos start coming and then restaurants, et cetera. So a lot of people that are decades long businesses were in that situation where it's like, Oh my God, I can't pay the rent. And the landlord like can't wait to get rid of them. Right. Cause they know that that space is like worth, you know, five, 10, 20 times more in some circumstances. So we really, sorry, a long answer to be like, we really were able to inspire people like saying like, no, this grant program is coming. Just hold on. And we're at the stage right now, getting sorry, getting back to your original question, where we're still waiting for money to be dispersed. Everyone is decimated, but they are still optimistic. And so we're hopeful that the grants will start getting dispersed at the, uh, maybe this week or next week. Um, and then the rebuilding starts, right? So like you got to rehire, like people don't have staff, right? We'd love to be booking shows, but like most places that aren't kind of first avenue type size, uh, history, et cetera, like, they maybe have their owner, maybe the owner's wife and like maybe one general manager on staff. So people have to rehire. They have to put their COVID safety protocols like, you know, so there's a lot of like uh, optimistic decimation. Does that make sense?
2: It does. But I I have heard, though, um, as and I'm thinking particularly in the hospitality industry at the moment, as people are uh, reopening restaurants or expanding their capacity or whatever. I mean, a major challenge has been finding uh, staff who are willing to come back and, and work at the moment. What, what's your anticipation of that?
3: I mean, I only wish we were at the point of rehiring staff, honestly. Like we, like, you know, restaurants um, have also been decimated, but they're still in a better position than we are right? Like, you know, we have a restaurant, the Depot Tavern, we can, you can, you you can reopen it with a week's notice effectively. Like um, we at First Avenue are looking at like a three to six month lead time. So we haven't really started the rehiring practices yet. Um, I have heard from other venues pretty much in the South that, you know, they kind of started rehiring and restaffing. They've had an exceptional amount of luck getting people, uh, getting their staff through like community efforts. And a lot of times our staffs are more familial uh kind of type of environments um and I always like to say like working at first I have it's more of a lifestyle than it is a job you know like it becomes like a part of your identity like you know I'm Dana from first to have like so it, it there's a little bit more that goes into it than just like a w-2 or like an employment situation
2: yes if I could ask you the same question about coming coming back what or what is the what is the state of uh the the situation for performers uh are people saying you know i've had it or are they desperate to get back or or how do you see the the landscape out there
4: yeah um i i might start by saying like again a lot of times it's easy to talk in sort of like short short form because um because a lot of performers you know we've had to learn you know the the intricacies of like um of the terms on essential federal applications, but just to like back up for a moment to say, you know, as 1099 employees, which means that we're contract workers, we're not employees, you know, of of any organization, um, musicians usually, you know, like buy their own healthcare, for example, as you can imagine, there's just a lot more uncertainty, you know, built in. Sometimes you got a flush month where you're, you got a lot of great gigs and sometimes, you know, maybe you're kind of, Eyeing the phone, <laughs> hoping that it rings with with an opportunity. Um, for us, it was a really big deal that federally the unemployment programs were expanded to include people who are contract workers or 1099 folks. Whereas in previous years, uh, that that has never been the case. You know, it was it was only wage earning folks. So that was a really big deal. In some ways, I think um, in the first couple of months before those benefits were being distributed, you know gosh it just felt so dire and so desperate and um and i mentioned you know the venmo feeds and just kind of artists like yo i've got enough to spare who's really hurting you know you saw those kind of conversations happening but i to be honest i was bracing for like oh my god i mean the the tried and true standby if you're really desperate is like you know what i don't have any gigs right now or my band just broke up i'm just gonna grab some serving shifts float myself through this okay well it's like your plan b is bust too you know the safety net is, is as has holes in it. So I think I was really bracing for total like abject collapse. But the federal programs, I think, have really, really helped. So <laughs> thanks to everybody who was part of advocating for those. Um, and I know that, like in my scenario, where you know I, I also like operate as an L, as a LLC, you know, so a limited liability corporation. Being able to apply for like uh, the PPP loan was hugely helpful. So I think I was bracing for the absolute worst, and um, and I think a lot of musicians were really buoyed. There was a life raft that came that said, I'm also watching, you know, people go back to school, and re career. And I guess we'll kind of, or, you know, maybe do some like online instruction. And I don't know how that'll hold, you know, once we're open, again, I can imagine some folks going, actually, I'm taking a sabbatical, I got a gig, or I can imagine some folks being like, this is this is also rad, you know, this is where I'm going to devote my energy. Now. Um, I think that it's always been in this economy right now where we rely so heavily on touring income, the way that the disruption of touring income affects musicians, um, isn't equitable, which probably doesn't surprise anybody. And that we're learning a lot about the kind of built in inequities of our society, but like even, um, even looking at women who tour, hard and earn their money that way. Like it's harder if you're going to be a family person, if you're going to be a mom, like dad, I've, I've been on tour with dads, you know, who, who can say like, yo, I got a two month old at home, but I got to make rent. I'm going to go out for two weeks and then I'll be back. Right. And then I'm on absolutely every nap and diaper shift, you know, <laughs> but like, if you're a mom, um, that's not viable in, this, in the same way to like pile into the van, you know, with a, with a two month old on your hip. That's not going to work in exactly the same way. So I think watching, um, yeah, some of the like societal inequities that are built in shake out similarly in the musical community. Who has parents who can float them for a second? Who doesn't? Mm-hmm.
2: Just wanted to quickly jump in here and and welcome anyone who's come in late. Um, This is a discussion about uh, bringing back live music, the the future of live music. We have uh, Dana Frank, who is the CEO of First Avenue, and we have a performer, writer, composer, singer, so many titles, (laughs) DASA, talking about their experiences over the last... uh, few months. Um, We also remember, we are seeking questions uh, through the the Q&A function. And uh, so you can send in questions there. In fact, Jim just sent one in saying, given performing arts is such an interactive, creative and collaborative process during the pandemic, how were you able to work with others? Um, And he says, I find Zoom meetings to be quite sterile and artificial, artificial. Uh, I would agree with that, actually, <laughs> but I mean, Dessa, you, you have been um, hard at work creating music.
4: Yeah. I mean, so far I've yet to meet like the musician who's like, you know what I love, like songwriting on Zoom. That's just great. It just works so, so smoothly. Um,
2: Maybe you just haven't looked hard enough. <laughs> <laughs> there's,
4: also, there's also like a horrible delay, which you may have noticed that if you try to sing with someone on Zoom, you just kind of, it looks like you're digitally glitching because you are both late essentially. Um, Yes, I have found Zoom to suck. But on the other hand, I have actually, um, I have been really surprised at some of the like purely creative lessons that I've learned during um, the pandemic. I would prefer to have learned them in a different way for sure. But I think that I discovered that like my degree of perfectionism, which I've sort of, I don't know, I've sort of found like uncomfortable to live with sometimes, but I also credited to like, hey, that's what get things done though. And that's what makes them good. I think I was polishing good stuff off because now, like not having the ability to indulge that impulse. So for example, like when I do um, layered vocals, I'm real picky about where each voice sits in the stereo field, meaning if you have headphones on, like how far right it is or how far left each voice is. And so I I used to like sit with my mix engineer, Joe Mabbitt, really talented dude to be like, okay, play it again, like move her in five degrees and her out, like, I can't do that because I can't sit in the studio. And I'm realizing that if I spend less time messing with the stereo field and more time writing new songs, I think I'm actually happier with with the output. Like I'm writing more stuff. And even if it's like 99.8% of what I would have preferred it be, that differential is not great enough to have justified all the time I was spending on that very, very, very last step.
2: Dana, I mean, I, I don't know if, if you want to take a crack at that, that question too. I mean, just the, the impact of the remote communication on your industry because, or you're part of the industry. I mean, I suppose you're constantly looking for bands possibilities. And um, I mean, has this had, an, this had an impact on what you're doing?
3: Yeah, I mean, I would say mostly from the organizing perspective. I mean, probably a little bit like, you know, talent bookers were always kind of discovering new acts online, you know, I, because from Minneapolis, you know, you're going to find that new band from like Australia or Europe or, you know, like you're searching YouTube and you're listening to samples and stuff. Um, but I'm not sure if like the founding of Neva would have been possible without Zoom because we probably would have waited until we could all get in the same room and then you know, people are a little bit more wary and um, just the, the physical limitations of getting, you know, 50 people from different states all in the same room at the same time would have been completely impossible. Um, and that was maybe also a factor of like, everybody sitting inside their house and people that are used to being very active and being out in the world. And like, I know, I certainly like, I don't think I've, been in the same city for more than a week at a time in the last decade and certainly I've never been at my house after you know between 9 p.m and midnight as much as I have the last year um and I'm very much looking forward to getting back to that again I will just say it was a great year but see you later
4: can I ask a follow-up on that Ewan if I'm not sure oh yeah um you know so I think and I hope probably everybody on the call appreciates it but like um you know dana is a bouse in this universe <coughs> particularly i mean has been because it's first Ave, have and that's a that's a venue that's respected internationally but but this past year i mean i've been on so many panels as people as venue owners and promoters and bookers you know are coming together to try to figure out how they're going to survive it like, you know your name is spoken with such reverence um, One person said, and I'm eager to see if you also think this, that like, there's also kind of a new camaraderie between people who might have been a little bit more inclined to understand themselves as competitors. And yes, they are competitors, but there's like a a teaminess now and and like the shared interests are more evident. Do you find that to be true?
3: Yeah, first of all, I hope this is being recorded because Deso saying I'm a boss is like pretty much the greatest thing that's ever happened to me in my entire life. but I definitely, so I am like a very collaborative person. It's kind of like how I run First Avenue. It's how I am maybe coming in as like the daughter of the owner. It's just not ever my personality to come in and like rule and, and you know, this way, or my way or the highway. Like just So I'm always the type of person that when I, would, when I would go to a city, I'd always reach out to the promoter or the club owner and be like, hey, can I get a tour? Can we have dinner? Like, let's swap ideas. And every time I would do that, I would get at the end of it after a couple of drinks being like, Oh, so glad I thought you were coming to our town. Like I thought you were, and I'm like, Oh, I was like, I just was trying to learn because you know, it's a kind of insulated environment. And so I was trying to see what other people were doing and learn from them. And it was just such like a guard of like, they just assumed like first Avenue was coming to their town. Um, and so in the last year that totally broke down. And so certainly the ability to have these conversations, like as, as stupid as like oh we want to get rid of like xing hands because people are annoyed at it like what's your solution before it would have taken like a deep relationship to get people to like share ideas and now I have you know a hundred people I could call and be like oh uh you can't wand anymore right like what metal detectors are you buying like just it's like the nuts and bolts of running a business right so like though absolutely those barriers have been broken down and I'm really hopeful that it'll lead to like a, a better, more equitable, because the more ideas we can share, the better we can all do.
2: So, so I, I, I was hoping that we could maybe, and I, I think the reason why the, the center for the, the study of politics and government actually asked for this discussion <laughs> was to talk about uh, the work of NEVA and the um, the way that you were able to liaise with um the, the federal government to produce this amazing program, which is, we believe about to pump a whole lot of money <laughs> yeah, into uh, shuttered venues. But t- Dana, tell us about how that came together. What, who, were, who were your allies? Who, was it an easy sell uh, at the federal level to say, you know th- this is an industry that really needs support?
3: it's interesting because we had never lobbied before. I mean, our industry as a whole, like we had no trade association. We had no lobby. There's no, there was no pack. Like there was none of that infrastructure. And so we really came to it with like no chip on our shoulder. Like, you know, we weren't like trying to make up for past losses. Like there was no ego to it. It was all like about saving the industry. So we had done, you know, when we were like, okay, we need And a lot of this was like me being like a little bit like, oh, I know First Avenue and I know the relationship we have in Minnesota, but knowing that this is a global issue and the solutions are going to have to be federally. I was like, we had to gather up all the first avenues like in all the towns and, and so that we can amplify our voice. So we just, that's what we started doing like reaching out and just being like, Hey, this is what we're doing. Come along. Um, and so when we all started talking, we just started doing some, like we had no impact studies, right? We had no data. So we just initially did some like initial surveys And it came back that 90% of venues, and this was probably mid-April, didn't have enough cash on hand to get through the next three months. And so that became like the desperate moment. And it really, I think that anonymous survey gave everybody the the really burning flame that they needed to, to put in the work because we didn't know who we were saving, right? We didn't know if it was our competitor. We didn't know if it was our friend but we knew that like 90% of independence and the way the music ecosystem is set up is, you know, you have two companies that control like 95% of touring in the U S and so, yeah, I also there was a lot of stories at the time coming out about like stock prices and like, Oh yeah, they'll dip a little bit, but then there'll be such like a burned wasteland, that they'll pick up market share on the other end. And so I'm going, I'm thinking back to like all of those like inquiries and those that outreach I'd done for the last decade, be like, wait, those are all my friends. The, all my friends are going to be gone. Like hell, no. Like, um, and so that was really like the drive that motivated us. And so, we uh, what did we do? We put together like a. We had we were really lucky in that we're businesses, right? So we have vendors and we have people that really came as soon as we formed this. That were like, yes, we want to financially support you because they recognize that if we didn't exist, their business wouldn't exist. So we were lucky that the fundraising kind of came to us. Um, and then we. I tend to do everything by committee. So we formed a, like a selection committee to hire a lobbyist. And, you know, we hired like the biggest firm in DC, which is totally antithetical to the idea of like indie venues. But we were like, this is a zero sum game. Like we either get this funding or we cease to exist. So th- this, is this wasn't like an exercise and like, let's just make our presence known. Like th- we, this was, you know, success or nothing. So we hired the biggest, baddest firm, um, We actually hired a so for the policy. Like we, our lead lobbyist was a Republican lobbyist. So this is what I had to learn. Like there's Republican lobbyists and there's Democratic lobbyists. I had no idea. So like our we didn't even know to ask that on the first questions, right? So our lead lobbyist ended up being like a House Republican lobbyist who loved live music, and her husband loved live music, and she was initially like, "This should not be a Democratic issue because music is universal. Like people on both sides, staffers on both sides of the aisle." And so as businesses, we never even viewed this as an arts bill. I think the Washington Post came out after the fact and was like the largest arts funding in the history of the United States. And we're like, oh wait, was this, this, was, this was a small business bill. It went to the small business committee and the small business administration. Like, so we didn't see this as an arts bill. We were like, no, we are Main Street. We are decades long small businesses. When we, we built our coalitions, we didn't build it with like the operas and the orchestras and the arts community. We built it with like the chambers of commerce and the hotels like I remember one call I was on with uh, Kevin McCarthy, you know, and that was, we went in with the um, the Republican leader in the house and we went in and we discussed with the Baker Fox theater, the restaurant next door, the hotel down the block and the chamber of commerce, all advocating for venue funding, because they said, if this, if the Fox goes away, all of our businesses go away. So that was our angle. And so our initial support came from John Cornyn, you know, the Republican side um, and, the only reason this bill happened was because of Amy Klobuchar. So I want to give her a special shout out because she really just, just made it happen and, and become the most unbelievable advocate. So that was a very long rambling answer, but that's kind of how we did it.
2: Were you um, surprised at, at who came to, to help you? I mean, what, what was it in, what was in it for the politicians?
3: Well, I have been told that this was a very fun campaign to work on, which I the first time I heard it like made me step back a minute because I was like, fun, this is the worst year of our lives, there's nothing, but for them, I mean, I guess it's much more fun than like tax. You know, we were we got musicians involved, we did press conferences, we did, you know, there was we did the a trolling campaign on a politician that was important to get on our side that wasn't returning our phone calls, so we put together like little pithy like Instagram stories and like we just really went all out. We had we were having artists make individual calls to politicians. We would do research and be like, I'll make up a name, but like Joe Biden, your favorite artist is Bruce Springsteen. And so we'd then get like Bruce to make a call, right? So like we were doing anything. Our, our kind of motto was like, no stone left unturned.
2: We are getting a lot of questions coming in over the transom here. And uh, I'd like to just uh, pick out a couple um, the uh let's see the i mean that sue writes in the twin cities is a very competitive market for the arts and entertainment venues both for-profit and non-profit do you see that as these venues reopen that may there may be less competition post-pandemic
3: I'm really curious to hear Dessa's thought on this because I actually think that Twin Cities has one of the most collaborative music communities of anywhere in the country, to be honest. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I was, you know, I was um, I was gonna say that I think it's easy because of the way that at least in my universe like when you're in high school or whatever or when you're in college taking an intro to econ like you're told that your competitors are the people who are offering other services right potentially of different qualities and at different prices right so if i were to look left and right and be like yo who's my competition i think a standard economic um example would be for me to like pick out other artists maybe other female artists maybe other people make, you know female artists making hip-hop slash pop but I think like my biggest competition is laundry. Like it's convincing someone that it's worth getting in their car and coming to the show. And so I don't actually think that my biggest competition is in other artists. Um, I think that there is like an unusual amount of collaboration in the Twin Cities scene. And to be honest, I didn't know that was unusual until I started touring. Um, I think one of my friends had to duck a, duck a beer can that was thrown because in other cities they weren't, they're, particularly like cross genre collaborations aren't as common as they are. And that might be a product of the fact that we don't, you know, we are so independent minded. We've got independent labels. We've got independent venues. We've got independent brokers. So we kind of forge alliances as they help and serve. And also um, maybe to just make clear a point that was definitely implied, you know, about what Dana said, but just from the artistic perspective, um, when, when we talk about that kind of market share of these, like, big two conglomerates that own a huge, huge, huge um, slice of the pie at the moment. If you are going to, let's say, sleep in a hotel, I don't think I would know if management changed since last time I was there. You know, like the consumer facing experience is usually pretty contiguous. Um, if a venue like First Ave was purchased, you know, was, if that business was bought out or subsumed by a larger group, Musicians would notice, and here's why. Like, I mean, you know, so, so Sonia, who is uh, who has been a longtime booker at First Ave, and runs um, runs the the a lot of the like the artist communications in a day to day way, you know, for for calendar scheduling and stuff. Um, I've sat on panels with her talking about how she makes that selection process. You can be a great person who's a funny hang. You can be great, great, great at what you do, you know, make great music, or you can promote hard and fill the room. And any two of those three I've heard her say on some occasions will work. I can promise you that's not the conversations happening backstage at Live Nation. The conversations backstage are, and I've, I've been told this sometimes like we're a Spotify booker by a couple of festivals, meaning I'm not going to listen to your music. If you, I'm just going to look at your Spotify count. you know, it's much more interest in profit margins than there is to the kind of double bottom line of also fostering a culture of art and community. Everybody's got to make rent. That's how it works. But there's also like a genuine interest in art, you know, and for a lot of independent bookers. And from stage, we see that not only just by being on stage, but like, Yo, I know that that's the window from the Booker's office (laughs) and I can see them watching because they want to catch a song because they care about the show, you know? And um, this industry, if it was run by those couple of major players is going to be a lot more about industry and a lot less about art.
2: I I wanted to ask about, this is of course a three-legged stool. We have the venues, we have the performers, but of course there's also the audience. And um, looking, and, and uh, from my per- per- perspective, perhaps the most important part <laughs> the audience. The, um, we've seen that people are really eager to get out, get back, at like least some people. But also, I mean, just looking at, say, movie theaters, where a lot of places have been open for a long time, but there's you know, a lot of people are preferring to watch from home still. I mean, what, um, what is your sense as to uh, what the audiences are likely to want or likely to do as things reopen? I mean, Dana, are you, are you thinking you're, you're going to get, you know, your, your doors trampled down or, or what's going to happen?
3: Like like everything, I just want to hear what Dessa has to say. Um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, our ticket sales are really strong. I don't think, I mean, humans have been gathering since there were two people in existence, right? Like, I just, I don't think that this is a business that is at risk of, you know, a transport. Like, I don't think that pandemic exposed like a flaw of the live music experience. I think there was a pandemic that said that people couldn't gather for the sake of public health. And as soon as that, the public health uh, vaccinations, and it becomes less of a, a crisis than, you know, people will always want to go back and gather. I mean, there's there's nothing like being in a room with somebody you love, hearing a very singular, unique experience right in front of your eyes. Right, I think it's a live theater and live arts and live music, and it's just a different experience, I think, than you know, a, an anonymous theater, for instance, for the movie comparison.
4: Yeah, I'd second that. I mean, no, I'm sure that if there was like a cinema, you know, a cinematographer on the call, like this is the point at which they like throw their laptop into the ocean. But I do think that there is a more similar experience of watching at home, you know, recorded beautiful work. Although it would be better to see at scale, you know, on the big screen. Um, the difference between listening to a recorded song and being in a room with the artist performing it live and with other people who are feeling the same way you know and you can look left and right and see that Uh, I do think there's just a wider difference between those two to the to the live the live arts Um, I would say that as as my conversations you know with my friend and manager Becky and my agent David as we're like getting down to the real like dude are we opening up again you know are we doing this are we getting back on the road and looking at spreadsheets and and dates and pulling up like dusty maps and like oh yeah how long is the drive between whatever you know omaha and denver (laughs) um i will say that i do think that there are some regional differences you know that i think that there is an eagerness in some parts of the country to really get back in at full capacity and some that are going to be more cautious i also think it's changing really fast the way that i felt last month was really different than the way that I feel now after my second shot. You know, I think the vaccines have really, 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 really changed the entire framework. And um, a YouTube comment should never, should be taken for a YouTube comment. But I admit that I, I'm i aware of those as I put out new music, like, where are we doing this again? You know, like the all cap, like, let's go. I think there is a lot of, um, of pent up demand. I think people are gonna be eager to go go out and we might we might have that kind of roaring 20s vibe for a little while as people catch up like on all this the salsa nights and broadway and live music that they missed
2: well of course we're coming to the time of year where there's quite often a lot of uh festivals and we and we have a question here um you know any any thoughts about the live festivals uh, that are a key part of the uh certainly the twin cities arts culture i mean the uh, Hennepin Avenue Block Party, the Rock the Garden, the Basilica Block Party, Cedar Fest, on and on and on and on. Um, will we see anything like that this year or, or is it going to get pushed back, do you think?
3: Oh, no, you're going to see it. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, I
4: think so. And in some ways it feels kind of... Um... I don't know if it feels like sort of a nice on-ramp if that makes sense back into live music and that we just happen to be entering this like phase of reopening in the warm summer months when we can do some of like the outdoor listening together. And then in the fall, as you know, as Dana said with the longer lead times that it takes for enclosed spaces to like turn the key on again and get the thing running, running. I think it's going to be a really, a really nice re-entry to start outside. And then as the weather cools and venues are back up and running to like re-enter those those venue spaces yeah
3: yeah i can tell you like our plan we have a couple pride events scheduled for july we're just gonna go for it um you know like i my my theory is that you know first have, like we don't want to be the first place to open like we want people to have gone maybe eat at a restaurant first go to a birthday party dip your toe in get comfortable and then when you're ready to go to shows we will be open and, and ready to for you to have the best night of your life that's my theory
2: I must admit, I was talking to someone uh, at a, a venue in town who is considering uh, an outdoor event this summer and there was questions about, well, do we have to mark out circles where people stand? I mean, are, are you, I mean, how do you see that playing out? Will, the, will there be rules like that to maintain social distancing or is that gonna be a venue by venue thing?
3: I mean, not by government mandate. I guess if the venues decide to do that, right? That's everyone's, everyone's choice. But, you know, as of May 28th in the state of Minnesota, there's no distancing requirements. And there's as of July 1st, or I think July 1st or 70% vaccination, whichever comes first, there's no masking. So I, uh, you know, again, if venues choose to do that for sure, but, um, you know, the CDC even said that's not, that is not a requirement. So we, you know, follow, we're following the science at first half.
4: And I know that from from my perspective. So right now I'm um, I'm in New York, and the mask mandate lifts really shortly as well here. Um, I would say that like in chatting with other bands who are starting to get on the road um, or make plans to to you know get back in the van, that there are some changes that I think that bands are considering at least, and maybe we'll see how they actually work in practice to you know to see if they maintain them. But some of the ideas that I've heard are like. Um, like are there going to be requirements for crew my crew because i'm a small indie artist is very small but that might mean like a merch seller or if i were traveling with like a sound tech you know um it has never occurred to me in the past to ask anything other than like yo have you sold too many drugs to get into canada (laughs) or whatever um so asking that kind of question you know are you vaxxed and and doing that um, the other thing is that at least one band that I spoke with is thinking about trying to limit the amount of social interaction that happens at, um, at the merch booth. So they might do an app that allows people to like buy merch beforehand and then pick it up. So you're essentially doing like a, you know, within the venue, like a curbside pickup as opposed to, to kind of like waiting in those snaking lines. We'll see if that holds, I don't know. But those for me, um, both of those were really new ideas within the past week as these conversations just get started.
2: One of the questions that's uh, in the, the Q&A here is from uh, Josiah who asks for Dessa, I mean touring in the past has been done in a pretty standard way, um, I mean other than checking vaccination records, I mean do do you see major changes in the way that you will be touring in the future?
4: I mean, to be honest, I was so, it was only on the call that I had yesterday that this, that this other band mentioned the like, you know, app where you can do merch for, it hadn't even occurred to me. I was like, oh, right. Like, to me, that's been such a big part of an indie artist, to be honest, is like, you know, we make a good chunk of our change at the merch table. It's also just like, that's where all the snapshots happen. Like, that's where you actually are communicating, you know, with a lot of your listeners and stuff. So, um, I would say that in the past, like (laughs) the most fastidious of us, like the most fastidious, I I thought it was clever. was like um, when you were done rapping or before a show, you would unscrew um, the capsule of your microphone. So it's like that kind of little, you know, miniature chain link metal dome. You'd unscrew it, it comes off and you set your mic carefully aside. And then you order a couple of shots of 151 from the bar and you just put the, you know, you're, dis- you're disinfecting it in alcohol, essentially. And um, we used to do a little stuff like that, carry your own mic so that you're not swapping stuff. But I will admit that touring, it does feel like it's the least at my level. It's such an intimate thing, right? That I think our best bet is getting everybody vaccinated because we're sitting shoulder to shoulder in the van. You know, it's, it's, um it is kind of like a, like a seven-legged potato race or something you're just really almost touching each other at all times when you're on the road at least in transit so yeah
3: that's what we'll like to hear we are building some bigger green rooms at first ave because if you have ever been backstage at first ave you know that there's like you know you're basically sitting on on each other's lap so we're gonna put in a shower we're gonna like do do the thing um oh my but- gosh I, I know
4: the first text <laughs> to my manager after this call they do you doing shout out first
2: yeah <laughs> but wouldn't that change everything it
4: will just dilute the experience no, never. last <laughs> question yeah i strike my answer i don't know it's a uh- new world
3: <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's okay it'll be it'll be thoroughly uh well aged and within the first week i guarantee you there'll be yeah. some stickers and it'll smell like smoke
2: we, we actually have a question from uh istanbul And uh, Idil, I think, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, uh, says, uh, since the pandemic and being able to connect virtually, do you think that live shows will now tend to include a live stream uh, to perhaps, you know, cater to that international audience through some virtual connection? I mean, live streaming, I mean, what are, what is going to stick, do you think, Dana, as a result of the pandemic?
3: Yeah, I mean, we've always seen live streaming. We did a a little bit through the pandemic, like basically when artists would ask us to, we would do it. We kind of didn't go out of our way. Um, But, you know, we kind of always saw it as like, oh, this will be a nice ancillary, right? Like if the band, like we're fully equipped at this point. So like if the band would want to, you know, throw some tickets on sale for five or 10 bucks or whatever, um, the way we see it happening, and this is just an opinion, but like a band might choose like, like the first or the last show on the tour or their hometown room or some some room that's special to them put that up um, I'm not sure you'll see like a geo-targeted like 20 shows become available from the same artist, but you know I think it's an amazing option for people that are you know either you know under too young to go out or too old or physically disabled or international like that but I again I don't ever see it like replacing like I can't see like oh should I Go ten miles to First Ave, or should I sit at home and watch the show? I guess I'll just sit at home and watch the show. That's that's how we see it playing
4: out. I feel mixed on this one, and I and it might just be because I'm sort of imagining like, do I personally, as an artist, you know, want an event live streamed? And then also like, do I just personally, as like a music consumer, am I really interested in watching that? Um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I did like a just super 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 low budget lo-fi um, weekly show that I live streamed from my apartment, um, just like on Instagram or whatever. And I called it show of force majeure, you know, and kind of honoring all the contracts that had gone bust. And I, there were some things that like, I, I think a lot of artists learned. One of them was was um, was sort of putting out a welcome mat for international listeners and sort of being like delighted and surprised. Like, yo, look at how many countries tuned it, even if there's only like 300 people. You know what I mean? Look at how many are from really far away. <laughs> That's cool. This feels sweet and fun and connecty. Um, but I will say that I can imagine it being sort of genre dependent, like do you want to see an act in a stadium? Do you want to see an act in a coffee shop? Well, it really depends what the act is. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm not trying to see a metal band or whatever at like 130 at the local espresso joint. That's not the vibe, man. You know, and I wouldn't want to see like a beautiful, you know, intimate, like Joanna Newsome harp gig at a huge, at a huge, huge spot. I want to be close, you know, I want to hear her exhale. Um so I think that maybe live streaming is sort of the same way I can imagine it being like that some acts really shine in that world I know that like hippocampus I think did a few nights at first Ave. total total ballers I think for, for me like, I've always been a little bit sensitive about the fact that um, I think I'm a strong live act, but I'm not like, um, I'm not an opera singer who like always flawlessly faultlessly hits every note perfectly and, and sometimes in performance, I'll just make the decision. Like it's worth missing the note to stage dive right now. It's cooler. Everyone, including me will like that moment more. It's not as cool live stream. You just sound flat. You know, there's something about that magic energy where you've made a real decision about how to best serve the show isn't always best serving the show remotely. So I can imagine occasionally doing it, but I think for me, I like one or the other. Let's do a produced digital thing where you can get it just right. Or let's do a live show. Also shout out to Istanbul. It's like my, one of my favorite cities in the world. So thank you for watching and listening.
2: Uh, another question here. Um, do you feel that venues have an obligation to restrict entry for health reasons? Which is probably gonna be an issue that we're gonna be hearing about for a while anyway. Dana, are you, are you planning to take people's temperatures?
3: I thought Dessa was gonna answer that one. Oh, the f- <laughs> I, I don't.
2: No, no, um, <laughs> you have to go first sometimes.
3: <laughs> no, um, so we, Neva has come out with a reopening safety. We worked with, you know, uh, epidemiologists and health experts in the field. Um, the temperature checks aren't, they're just not effective in, in actually like keeping COVID out of your building because a lot of people are asymptomatic. They are under, but they're a good like, we call <laughs> I hope this doesn't offend them. We called like the theater of safety. It's like it's a good way of like signaling that like you take safety seriously here, and that's like what it's it's more effective for like perception that it actually is for restraining COVID. But at the same time, if somebody shows up and maybe they are a little sick, maybe they it it dissuades them a little bit. Um, we are not uh, considering requiring vaccines for entry. We are considering employee vaccination, you know, uh, requirements like Dessa and the road crews, and a lot of that is for uh. We are starting to see artists that basically put it in their contracts that we have to certify that all employees are vaccinated. So there's again, we have it's a different industry than restaurants and retail and other hospitality. So um, those are the kinds of things we're looking at. I uh, it's a, a very very complicated. It's ethically fraught. It's you know probably going to be one of the most pressing topics of conversation for the next two months. You know, I know I think Broadway had said they're going to require. A passport. I think some of the sports teams are having vaccinated sections. Clubs are just—they're just their own beasts. So we're—we're we're sorting through all of that now.
2: I uh, there's, there's an interesting question here from uh, Drake, who essentially says that um, it's hard to create in absence of life experiences. Do you uh, do either of you anticipate a continued impact on new music or impact on artists who are trying to cultivate a following just because they've actually missed the last year? I mean, what what, what about the the art? Will, mm-hmm. what is will there be a lasting pandemic effect? I mean, let's have Dessa do this one. <laughs>
4: I, again, I sort of guessed wrong, I think on this, like I did a little bit of just anecdotal um, research on it as I was preparing to write an essay about like how the pandemic was affecting artists for, uh, for the New York Times Magazine. And I wrote like the distributor that my label works with just to say like, hey, have you noticed that there's been like a, a dip in the submission of new music, you know, or what are your numbers like as compared to last year? And I think, um, I think that because this pandemic came at a time where, home studios are so common we have experienced the like artists are still able to create things in a way that if it had hit maybe 20 years ago or something before everybody had like a microphone in their closet and pro tools on their computer i think we would have found like a really big slog in um in the creation of new material but because those like consumer-based tools have been largely available i don't think there's gonna be like i don't think we're still waiting for like a fallout we're like oh i guess there's nothing new you know, this month, like just the same old songs on Spotify or whatever. Um, I think I think people have stayed creative. And I think even if there was a couple of months there, there certainly was for me where um, just the ambient adrenaline and fear was like too overwhelming to want to like sit down and listen to a beat and rhyme anything. And I didn't want to write about, you know, Clorox. I didn't want to write about that lived experience. Um, but I think after that first couple of months, a lot of artists really bounce back, and the pipeline feels full again. I know that maybe Dana could speak to it even better than I do because I'm just peeking into the room into which she sits. But like, man, the conversations that we're having to get back on the road, you know. So essentially, when you call a venue and you try to set it up, man, there are a lot of bands trying to get out there. So I bet, I bet your dance card is very full.
3: Well, then that's like that's the kind of stuff that keeps me up at night, to be honest. Like because every artist. Is getting on the road starting Labor Day, say, and so with all of the pent up, with all of the touring artists, like, we, how are we going to support the local scene? So if you have those artists that have been in their room recording new music, and they they're ready, like, I just think doing that live show is so important for an artist, like, develop. And obviously, I'm biased, but like, to develop your voice, to see how it plays, to get that like firsthand interaction with with the audience, like, so that's what like that's the kind of stuff that is like stressing me out these days. Like, okay, how are we going to have enough slots? And how are we going to support the local musicians who need that to like nurture their, their fan, their fan base and their creativity? Because, you know, our calendar is, it's, it's booked, it's, it's, you know, 16, 18 holes deep sometimes. Um, and so we're now looking like, okay, we need maybe, you Benton
0: know,
3: we're looking like, you know, do we do early, late? Well, that's not good for the performer because then you want that fully dedicated staff and that experience. And, you know, you want to play at eight, you don't want to play at six. So. Those are, those are the kinds of things, again, that we're also trying to sort out now.
2: We are running out of time here. And I should I would be remiss not saying if you do have some music that you think is really good, you should send it to my colleagues in The Current because they're, <laughs> they're always looking for stuff. So, But um, thank you very much. This has been absolutely fascinating. And I have learned a great deal. So Dessa and Dana, thank you very much. And I think uh, Larry has a, a couple of words he wants to say.
0: I just want to add to that. Thanks. It's been a terrific conversation. Um, our programming covers the um, a very wide range and we've been moving more into the arts. We had uh, some really terrific um, artists come in, including Dick, Kate Camillo um, and Charles Baxter and others um, in the uh, in December and today's program really fills that out. So thank you very much. Um, I also want to thank Kelly Zarth who's responsible for organizing today's event. Thank you very much, Kelly. Once again, I want to thank you, our terrific, terrific uh, panel today, you and Kerr, Dessa, and um, Dana Frank, and uh, thank all of you for joining us. Take care, and thanks again.